Um, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. You know, we've, we've been in Mark since January. For those of you who um, may have just come back into town the last couple of weeks, we kind of took a little hiatus uh, after, after eight months in one book. You're kind of like, man, I need a break. So we did a three-week uh, stretch. Dave was up here every week and talking about us as a church family and our relationships and how we prioritize relationships the way that Jesus did with God, with one another, and with the world around us. So that's kind of where we've been the last three weeks. Well, today we're jumping back into Mark. Since it's been um, almost a month since we were in Mark together, I just want to take a second at the very beginning to kind of recap where we've been in Mark. Um, You may remember for the first eight chapters of Mark, we see this picture of Jesus's ministry on earth, what he was actually doing for three years when he he was here um, from the ages of about 30 to about 33 for Jesus. And in those eight chapters, his ministry, the way that it looked is he kind of, he was in like the Galilean villages that were outside of Jerusalem. And he was kind of bouncing around from village to village, from synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming this message of God's kingdom, saying the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is coming. And everywhere he went, like amazing things would happen. He was, he was healing the sick, you know, raising the dead, feeding thousands of people, I mean, multitudes of people. Like Jesus, everywhere he went, something spectacular was happening. Um, in the ninth chapter of Mark, something changed in the way that he was doing ministry. No longer was he bouncing from village to village, but we see him set his eyes on Jerusalem and he starts to beeline it towards Jerusalem. And you'll remember Jerusalem was like the epicenter of Jewish culture and Jewish religion. And and Jesus starts heading that way in chapter nine and he tells his followers, hey, when we get there, you might remember this from chapter eight and chapter nine, two different times. He says, hey, listen, when we get there, I'm gonna be betrayed, I'm gonna be killed, I'm gonna rise from the dead, and they're just, they don't know what's going on. So then in chapter 11, he gets to Jerusalem, and this is where we were the last time. Dave, uh, about four weeks ago, stood up here, and he talked about when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, and he starts clearing the temple, turning over their tables, letting animals free, and chasing money changers out of the courtyard. If you, if you haven't, I encourage you to get online and listen to Dave's sermon on that. He did a really great job with it. And we, where we're picking up today is right after that. So Jesus clears the temple. He goes out of Jerusalem that night, spends the night with friends outside of the city. And in, and in verse 27, we're gonna find him coming back into the city of Jerusalem with his disciples. And so we're gonna start, I'm just gonna read all the way through verse 27 to verse 33. And, uh, and then we're gonna go through step-by-step step through the text. So starting in verse 27. They, they being Jesus and his disciples, they arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests... The teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. And they discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven... Then he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say for men, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the word of the Lord out of Mark chapter 11. Uh, We're going to see three things kind of happen through this text. Uh, The first is going to be a question. There's this group of men that we'll talk about who they are in a little bit, but they come to Jesus and they give him this question. And then there's going to be a response where Jesus gives them a counter question in response to their question. 
And then the third thing is going to be their response to his question. Lots of questioning and responsing going on here. It's like a little interview going on, interrogation of one another. We're going to see a question, a counter question, and then their response. So let's look first at this question. You know, it starts in verse 27, say they arrived in Jerusalem and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts. And, you know, just a little footnote on this, like when I read that this week, I'm just kind of amazed at Jesus, his courage and boldness. I mean, the day before this, he's in the temple clearing it out, turning over tables. And you know, he knows that this is ticking off the religious elite. And then the next day he shows up again and walks right into the same courts and starts teaching people. Oftentimes we imagine Jesus, like there's this, we kind of have this mental picture of him as like this meek and lowly kind of guy that was just, you know, I don't, kind of mousy or I, I don't know. We have this image of Jesus as like this, he's just kind of weak. But man, look at what Jesus does. He walks in with confidence and courage. This is not a weak and timid, meek man. This is a man that knows his purpose, a man full of courage, full of boldness. And he walks right into a place where yesterday he's kicked a hornet's nest and he goes right in there again and starts teaching God's word to God's people again. And it says that as he's teaching the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders come to him. Now, this is not just a random assortment of people, okay? Uh, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, these were the three groups that made up what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was just a, a Jewish ruling council. Um, they had pretty much unlimited authority when it came to all things religious in the Jewish world. They were the top. They were the authority. They had some political power as well, but that was pretty limited because of the Roman government. But man, when it came to religious matters, the Sanhedrin, these collection of 71 different men, of, of, of priests, of teachers of the law and of the elders, they held the power when it came to Jewish religion and custom. And so they come to Jesus and they have this question for him. You know, he has come into the temple, their domain, the place where they are the master. You know, the Sanhedrin to the temple would be kind of like uh, the Supreme Court justices and the Supreme Court. You don't roll up in the Supreme Court and start telling the justices how to do things, you know, or it'd be like the president and his cabinet and the affairs of the White House. You don't roll up in the White House and start telling the president how he needs to do things. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's come into the temple, the domain of the Sanhedrin, and now they're here to interrogate him and find out who he thinks he is to be doing this stuff. And so their question to him is really simple. It says, hey, by what authority are you doing these things? And who, who gave you this authority? There's a couple things in this question I want us to unpack. The first one is just this issue of these things. It says, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, the first question we should be asking is, what, what are they talking about? Like, what things are they asking Jesus about? I think it's really clear that primarily they're talking about what he did in the temple the day before. I mean, he's come into their place, disturbing the way that they th say things should be done. And so they're saying, hey, what authority do you have to do these things? But I think there's also a good chance they're not just referencing what happened in the temple. You know, we know from earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter three and chapter seven that some religious leaders come from Jerusalem and they start interrogating Jesus very much in the same way. And so I think these leaders, they know, they have heard about what Jesus has been up to. They know that he's been telling people that their sins are forgiven. They know that he's been casting out demons. And so their question immediately is, hey, what authority do you have to do this? Who gave you the authority to do these things? And I think they're talking about his whole ministry and what happened in the temple. Now, the second thing we need to unpack in this question is, 
authority, this, this word, authority. I want to make sure we have a clear understanding of what authority really means, because it is going to be kind of the backbone of our entire time together this morning, the issue of Jesus's authority. There's two different words, I think, that sometimes we kind of get mixed up. I think sometimes I, I do this. I, I confuse the word power and the word authority. And in the Bible, there's, in the New Testament, there are two different words for power and authority in the original language, in the Greek language. The, the word for, for power was this word dunamis. And dunamis is where we get our word dynamite. And so what it means, it just implies, uh, it implies just power, just what it sounds like. It implies ability, the potential for power and strength. And that's the word power or dunamis. But there's this other word that is exousia. That's what it is in Greek. Exousia means authority. And what authority, impl- authority implies that there's already power, but it also implies that there is a legal right to exercise that power. So someone can have lots of power, but that does not mean they have the right to carry out that power. And what authority conveys is that someone has given you the right, the freedom, the, the legal privilege of carrying out the power that you have. I'll give you an example uh, between authority and power. Two different examples. You know, I think of in our culture, um, if there's a criminal, someone who's broken a law, a mob of people would have the power to punish that criminal. That they could lynch that criminal if they want to. They could kill them. They, whatever. They have the power to do that, right? But they don't have the authority to do it. In our, in our culture, only the court system has that kind of authority. Our court system has the authority to take a criminal who has broken the law and try him and find him guilty and then punish him with whatever his conviction is or sentence is. And so a mob has power but no authority, whereas a court system has power and authority. Another great example, a friend of mine, Isaac, told me earlier this week, we were talking about this. He said, Aaron, I think you just talk about you and your kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, you are obviously stronger than your two boys. They are aged five and three. So I am, I was really appreciative of his compliment that I'm stronger than a five-year-old and a three-year-old. He said, you have power over your five and your three-year-old. He says, but you also have authority because you are their parent. God has given you them as your children. So you have authority to teach them and train them and discipline them and, and you know, like take care of them. Like it's my authority, my right to exercise my power over my sons because God has given it to me. And, and Isaac said, me, on the other hand, he said, I have power over your kids. I could beat them in a wrestling match. He said, but I don't necessarily have authority over them. And I thought this was really helpful because it helps us see that authority is something that is given. So Isaac, although he has no natural authority over my kids, if I invited him over to babysit my children, I would be giving him some level of authority over them. So now he has power and authority. Does that make sense? And so the Sanhedrin shows up and what they start questioning is Jesus's authority. You notice they say nothing about his power. I think everybody was all too aware of the things that Jesus had been doing to deny that he had any sort of power. I mean, they had seen him raise the dead. They'd seen him feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread, you know, like they knew that Jesus had power. The question was, who gave you the right to exercise that power? And so this question rephrased would be the Sanhedrin saying, hey, Jesus, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to march in here to our domain, to the place where we are the authority and start exercising this power the way that you do? They're kind of saying, so what if you have power? What gives you the right to exercise it? You know, in the, in the rabbinical tradition, anytime somebody showed up with a new teaching or a new idea, 
it was kind of expected that they would say where they got that idea from. So if a rabbi shows up to a synagogue and starts teaching, he has a new idea that no one has ever heard, he will footnote his rabbi. So at the end, he'll be teaching something and he'll say, just like rabbi so-and-so said and rabbi so-and-so said, constantly referencing the person who taught him and gave him the ideas that he had. Man, Jesus never did this, did he? Jesus never footnoted another rabbi. Instead, what did he say? He would say, truly I say to you. And then he'd say whatever he was gonna say. Or he'd say, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. In other words, I'm the one with the authority. Jesus claimed authority just in the way that he taught. And so the Sanhedrin, they knew that Jesus had never referenced anyone else. So they're like, whose authority are you? Like, who gave you the right to do this? They also know that if anybody was able to give a right, a a religious privilege or authority to somebody, it was a Sanhedrin. And they knew that Jesus had never come to them and said, hey guys, is it okay if I... I'm gonna go out to the villages here and heal some people. You guys good with that? You all right? Like, he never showed up and did that. Jesus never asked for permission. He never footnoted anybody else. So now the Sanhedrin's kind of like, what gives you the right? Who do you think you are that you could come and do the things that you've been doing? We wanna know who your authority is. So that's the question. That's the first question. And you know, this is really just the first of seven encounters that Jesus is gonna have with the Sanhedrin in Mark 11. And continuing on through the rest of Mark, we're going to see six more kind of encounters with the Sanhedrin. And really, Jesus has kind of been on a collision course for this, this encounter. They're going to come up against him and question his authority. And, you know, it's all of Mark, a key issue has been the authority of Jesus, the right of Jesus to do the thing he's been doing. I've, I've preached seven times out of this series, out of Mark. This is the third one where I've had to wrestle with this idea of authority and come in here and teach about his authority. Mark very clearly wants his readers to know that there is something significant about the authority of Jesus. It is not like any authority that anyone else has. All through the gospel of Mark, we see Mark setting up Jesus as one who has authority over scriptures. Chapter one, verse 27. He shows that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm, again in verse 27 of chapter one, and also in chapter nine, verse 25. He shows that Jesus has authority over Satan in chapter 3, verse 27, authority over sickness in chapter 2, verse 10, authority over sin and authority to forgive sin in chapter 2, verse 10. He has authority over the religious laws and their tradition in chapters 2, 3, and 7. He has authority over death in chapter 5, authority over nature in chapter 4 by walking on water, authority over matter in chapter 6 by feeding thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread. And he shows that he has authority over the temple as well in chapter 11, because he walks in and does what he pleases. Over and over again, Mark is trying to show that this Jesus, the man Jesus, he not only has the power, but he has the authority and the right to exercise his power however he chooses. And so as they ask this question, hey, what right do you have to do these things? Jesus is gonna reply with another question. Look with me in verse uh, 29. And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Now, I've always thought that this was Jesus kind of being a little snarky, you know, like being evasive and be like, oh, you got a question for me? I got a question for you too, you know? Like, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus was doing. I don't think he's evading their question. Again, for rabbis, this was the way they taught. They would often teach with questions. 
And so if you went to a rabbi and you asked them a question about God, they would often reply to you with a question for you, which made you think deeper. Good teachers still do this, right? One of the best professors I ever had in grad school. He would never answer a question directly. It drove me crazy. Like, we'd ask him a question, and he'd be like, well, let me ask you. you know? And then I'm forced to, like, dig into my own resources and think for myself and try to figure out what he was trying to point me to with this, with this question. And that's what Jesus does with the, with the Sanhedrin here. He responds with a question, and he points them back to this man, John the Baptist. Now, if you weren't with us at the beginning of Mark, we talked about John the Baptist in chapter 1. John the Baptist was actually the cousin of Jesus, and you remember that he showed up before Jesus' ministry and he had this message, this message of repent and be baptized for forgiveness because there is someone after me that is coming that will have authority that I can't even touch. John's message was always pointing to Jesus. And so when Jesus says, hey, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? He wasn't just talking about the act of John baptizing. Because when John baptized, he baptized people into his message and his message was always pointing to Jesus. John's whole life was given to pointing people and preparing their hearts for Jesus. This was the purpose of John the Baptist. He said, look, look, I'm here to teach, but after me is gonna come someone whose shoes I can't even untie. Like I'm not worthy to touch his shoelaces. And I'm baptizing you with water, but he's gonna baptize with fire. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, in front of religious leaders from Jerusalem, John looks at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Sanhedrin knew who John claimed that Jesus was. They knew who, what John taught about Jesus and that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, God in the flesh. But they didn't believe John, which is why Jesus says, Hey, John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? He gives them kind of one, uh, one question. He even makes it multiple choice. He's like, hey, John's baptism, was it A, from heaven, B, from men? A, from God, B, from men. And immediately the Sanhedrin has to figure out what to do with Jesus' question. And I think the way they respond is so interesting. It reveals so much about their hearts and uh, where they were and why they were coming to ask Jesus the questions that they were. Look with me in verse 31. It says, they discussed it amongst themselves. This means this word discussed, I mean, they literally like huddled up and had to confer with one another and talk about how they were gonna respond. That whole scene, can you just imagine that? I mean, like the, the most powerful religious leaders come in in front of other people in the temple courts and they're like, what authority do you think you're doing this? And Jesus gives them one question. They're like, oh, yeah, I don't know. That's all right. And they're like huddle up and they start talking and they're trying to figure out how they're going to respond. And they say, look, if we say from heaven, then he's going to ask us, then why didn't you believe it? But if we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So immediately they have to confer with themselves. And what's funny about this is that they came trying to trap Jesus because they did not believe his authority was from God. And if they could get him to, con to confess that and admit that, then they would end his ministry right there. If they got Jesus to admit, hey, he'd just been doing this on his own, then his ministry's done and they don't have to worry about it anymore. But they also knew that if he said that his authority was from God, that they could accuse him of blasphemy. We know this because it's what they do in chapter 14. If you read chapter 14, they ask him, like, hey, are you the Holy One? Are you the Messiah? He says, I am. And they, ah, they rip their clothes and they accuse him of being a blasphemer. So they think they've trapped him. Either way, no matter how he answers, we've got him. And now Jesus has completely turned the tables and now they feel trapped. 
man, if we say John was from heaven, then that means we're acknowledging that his authority comes from God. But if we say John was from men, then we're afraid of all the people because they all love John. What do we do? So what do they do? They just say, oh, we don't know. We don't know. They give the ultimate cop out. Oh, we don't, we don't really know. These are guys that are supposed to know everything. These are the guys that are supposed to be at the top. They're supposed to know everything about Jewish religion and faith. And their answer is, we don't know. What's sad about this is the truth is not that they did not know. The truth is that they were unwilling to know. They were unwilling to know the full truth about Jesus's authority. And we see something interesting at play here that I think applies to all of us as well. We'll keep talking about this as we go, but it's the difference in a defensive posture towards Jesus versus a responsive posture. You know, the Sanhedrin came in perceiving that they were the authority and so the fact that Jesus showed authority felt like a threat to them. And so they instantly come in with a defensive posture. And because they had a defensive posture to what Jesus was trying to do, they were completely resistant to anything he might say to them or even reveal to them. And this is why Jesus says, okay, then I'm not gonna answer your question. Because of their defensive nature, they refused to know what Jesus wanted them to know. And so he says, okay, you've, you've made your choice. I'm not gonna answer you. The difference in that is a responsive posture, the opposite of that. A responsive posture comes ready to respond to what Jesus wants to reveal. It is not a posture of pride, but a, a posture of humility, a posture of being willing to learn. And we just don't see this in the Sanhedrin. They show up with a defensive posture, unwilling to know the truth about Jesus. And because they're unwilling to know, Jesus does not give them what they're asking for. Now, I wrestled all week with this text. You know, it's, it's okay, that's kind of what's going on. That's the picture of the story. That's why Jesus is responding the way they were. But I kept going, God, what do you want us to do with this? Like, I've preached on your authority multiple times now. Like, what do you want me to say about this? And he kind of took me a path that I wasn't super excited about preaching, I'll be honest. It's basically a path of us looking at, let's just be honest this morning and take a moment to look at our own hearts and our response to the authority of Jesus. Are we like the Sanhedrin, taking a defensive posture? Or are we going to humble ourselves and be responsive to the authority of Jesus? And I think all of us, probably all of us, everyone in this room, I don't think there's any exception, all of us land somewhere on a sliding scale in the way that we respond to the authority of Jesus. Because if Mark is right, then Jesus is the Son of God, He is God in the flesh, and He has not only all power, but he also has all the authority to carry out that power however he wishes. And all of us, when we hear that, we land somewhere on this sliding scale of a response to that. Some of us, there are some in the room that, that have given their lives to Jesus and, and you're, you want to follow Jesus and you say, yes, I recognize Jesus as my authority. He's my Lord. I wanna submit to everything he wants for my life. And it's a day-by-day -day journey just to keep being submissive to the will of Jesus. Others on the other end, some of you in here, you, you know, you might be in this place where you don't believe in Jesus. You, you don't believe in God. Maybe you believe Jesus was a man that lived, but you don't believe he was the son of God. Or maybe you don't believe he lived at all. And so therefore, your obvious response to this claim of his authority is he's not my authority. He has no authority over my life, and I'm not submitting anything in my life to him. In between these two extremes, there's, I mean, a hundred, a thousand different places we could land. 
You know, some of you might be taking steps towards Jesus. And so a little bit at a time, you haven't given your life to him yet, but you're not at this extreme. You're like one thing at a time saying, okay, you can have authority over this area of my life, but don't touch this one. You can have this one. Some of you may be at a place where you've given your life to Jesus and you're trying to give everything to him, but you know there's still this thing in your life that you have not submitted to his authority. All of us land somewhere on this sliding scale, including myself. And all week, what I kind of heard God saying to me about this was, Aaron, where are the places that you acted just like the Sanhedrin? Where are the places in your life that you show up and you ask this question of Jesus, Jesus, what gives you the right to have authority over my life? What gives you the right, Jesus, that I should submit everything to you? And I think there's two ways that I identify to my own life that I do this, and I'm pretty sure most of us can probably resonate with these two things. One, I love Jesus when I see him doing great things, healing the sick, you know, all, preaching the good news, all that. But man, when, when Jesus teaches something, when he has a teaching that challenges my comfort or my perceived rights, man, I, that makes me uncomfortable. When I read one of Jesus' teaching that kind of brushes up against me and goes against what I want for my life, then I begin to not necessarily, I, I want to ask that question. I want to say, Jesus, what gives you the right? And I see this in multiple areas. You know, I think we see this so much when Jesus talks about sexuality, right? Man, when Jesus starts to teach about sexuality, we read the New Testament and, and Jesus' standard for sexuality, many of us, our first response would be like, Jesus, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to tell me who I can have sex with and who I can't? What gives you the right to tell me what I should look at and what goes on in my heart when I see a beautiful woman? What gives you the right, Jesus, to tell me how I should live my life sexually? For some of us, it's finances. We love Jesus, but when he starts teaching us about our finances and our money, we go, Jesus, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to tell me where I spend my money and where I don't? What gives you the right to tell me where my treasure should be and where it shouldn't be. What gives you the right? For some of us, it's about marriage and what Jesus teaches about marriage. Just a chapter earlier in chapter 10, some people come to Jesus and they ask him about divorce. And he gives a really difficult teaching. And we want to reply, we say, Jesus, what gives you the right to tell someone when it's right to get a divorce and when it's not? What gives you the right to tell who should be getting married and who should stay married and who shouldn't? What gives you the right, Jesus, to make such claims on a person's life? For some of us, it's career path. It's where our life is headed. And we go, we see clear where we want to go, and then Jesus starts calling us into something different. And, and, and we kind of just start, Jesus, what gives you the right to try to dictate the path that my life is going to take? Who do you think you are? What kind of authority do you think you have over my life that you would make such claims on me? And I'm, I'm sitting under this with you, like don't hear me like telling this is all you, this, this is me, this is what God was showing me this week in my own life. You know, I love to look at Jesus stomping out the religious leaders, but when it comes to some of these teachers that seem to violate my personal authority and my rights, I end up taking this defensive posture like the Sanhedrin. Asking Jesus, what gives you the right? So one way we act like the Sanhedrin is to push against Jesus whenever he starts to teach something that kind of makes us uncomfortable and pushes against our comfort zone. I think another place that we act like the Sanhedrin is sometimes when we read some difficult things in the Old Testament. I'll tell you what I mean by this. I, 
You know, I, I, love, I love Jesus. Like, I love God uh, with all my heart. I'm, I'm trying to love him with more of who I am always. It's just, it's a continual journey. Um, but sometimes it is a struggle of a journey. You know, I've been reading through the Old Testament recently, and I've been reading in Numbers, the book of Numbers. And there are some things in there that when I read it, I go, God, what are you doing? I mean, stuff that we would look at and just think it's atrocious. And I'm tempted to take this defensive posture like the Sanhedrin and go, God, what gives you the right? Who do you think you are? Like, where did you get this authority to think that, that a person's life could be ended just because you say so? Like, what kind of God are you? What gives you the right, God? And we read this. I've had countless conversations over coffee tables and in living rooms where people are struggling because they love Jesus. They love the God they see in Jesus. And then they, they read the Old Testament and, and they go, man, God, who are you? Like, what gives you the right to do this? And yet in Psalm chapter 115, verse three, there's this verse. And it says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. You know, there have been times in my life where this is like the most encouraging verse ever. Oh, God, you're in the heavens. You do whatever you want. You can do it. Oh, thank you, God. And there's other times where I'm like, oh, man, God is in the heavens. He can do whatever he wants. There is this God who not only has all power, evidence in creation around us, evidence in my physical body, God has all power. And yet he also has all authority the right to execute that power however he wishes. And Psalm 115 says, hey, God is in the heavens. He's gonna do whatever he wants. God will do whatever the heck he wants. No one answers. He does not answer to anyone. We answer to him. Man, and this God, this God that has all the power and all authority that can do whatever he wants with it, this God evokes a fear in us. And some of us, it evokes an anger. Some of you are just squirming right now, I know, like, I've been squirming all week with it. This is what the Bible teaches about God. I think the reason this evokes fear in us, there's a couple reasons. I think one is because admitting that there's a being with this kind of authority brings us face to face with someone who is undeniably more powerful than us. And we don't like that. I don't like that. I, you know, like when we admit that God has this kind of power and this authority brings us face to face with a being who is undeniably more powerful than we are. And the second reason is, I think it's just, you know, it kind of feeds on that first one. We, we live in a culture that values, I mean, immensely values the rights of the individual, right? I mean, radical individualism, that is our, that is our culture. I mean, just turn on your TV, listen to the news, read, read whatever, like watch TV, get on social media, like our... Our culture lives and breathes this idea that each person, each individual human, has full authority over their own life and nobody else can tell them how they should live their life. This is, the, this is much, very much the backbone of our culture. Like, it's what we value. And a lot, of this, a lot of this stems from the Enlightenment. We don't have time for a history lesson this morning, but you know, this movement in the 18th century was the Enlightenment. And this was the place where radical individualism was born. And our, cult, our culture has just adopted it. We are grandchildren of the Enlightenment. And so sometimes we smuggle in that kind of thinking, that, that radical individualism, we smuggle it into our faith. And we believe like I am ultimately the authority on my own life. And that's why when God comes in and says, hey, no, I have something else for you. We're like, oh, who do you think you are? He gives you the right. Or we hear about this God that can do whatever he pleases and answers to no one. We go, who does he think he is? What gives him the right? 
I don't know where you land on that sliding scale I was talking about. You know, if you're on this end and you believe God has no authority, Jesus has no authority in your life, you probably hate me right now. I'm sorry. This is just, I think this is what the Bible teaches. I'm trying to be honest with it. You know, I, I'm somewhere closer to this end, I think. You know, I'm trying to submit my life to Jesus. I don't know where you are. But I have a feeling that all of us, no matter where we are, we've felt these tensions. A God who who would tell me how I should live and what I should do. And man, it makes us bristle. And a God who has all power and all authority, the right to carry it out however he wants, it invokes fear and even anger in some of us. You know, I, I want to pause here. I, I was hesitant, like I said in my sermon, this is not where I wanted the sermon to go. Um, I just felt like this is what God kept taking me here and unpack my authority, unpack my authority, unpack my power, unpack my right to exercise that power, keep going. And you know, I, I think, I know this is heavy. I didn't want to bring it up because I had this fear that if I bring it up, I'm opening this like huge pit of like questions about God that I don't have time to answer this morning. God, God, all this, God, if I teach this, this is kind of my thought this week. God, if I teach this, it's just going to reinforce all these thoughts that people that don't know you already have, that you're some sort of tyrannical like brute, like that you're like this angry bully God who just wants to do whatever you want. And you don't care about anybody else. And I know that many of you have been given that picture of God. You've had people that have pointed you to the power and the authority of God, but they haven't pointed you to much else about God. And the picture you've been given of him is not one that you really want to trust. It's not somebody you want to submit to. I think we have a hard time understanding a God with all the power and all authority being trustworthy because we've never encountered a being that could handle all the power and all authority. I mean, what does power do? It corrupts, right? So we think, man, if there's somebody out there that has all power and all authority to do whatever they want with it, then how can they be trustworthy? Surely they will be, be corrupted. Surely they will abuse that power. Surely this God has abused this power. I think, I think that this issue of God's ultimate power and ultimate authority this issue of God being a God who does whatever he wants and answers to no one. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is such good news. Because in Jesus, we get to see what a God of all power, of ultimate authority, we get to see what that God does with his authority. I mean, do you want to know what God is like if you're afraid of a, of a God who has all power and all authority, can use it however he wants, if you're afraid of that God, look at Jesus. Because Jesus shows us how God wants to leverage his authority. I mean, just read through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus doesn't show up on the scene with an iron scepter crushing heads and, you know, taking, you know, like, he doesn't do that. He shows up. And the way that he shows up is that he starts to teach. He heals. He forgives. He loves. He encourages. He feeds. He fixes he invites people in. He laughs with people. This is a picture of what the God of all power and all authority does with his power and authority. I mean, that is beautiful. A God who can do whatever he wants and he leverages his authority for me. He leverages his authority for you. Like, this is a picture of our God. One of the most beautiful pictures in scriptures in, in Philippians chapter two it's one of my favorite passages. I think maybe one of the first sermons I ever preached came out of Philippians chapter two. 
In verse five, Paul is trying to grapple with this God who's all powerful, all authoritative in what he does with it. And he says this, he says, Jesus in verse six, he says, who being in very nature, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Let that sink in. A God of infinite power and authority. And he says, you know what? I shouldn't use this for my own advantage. But instead, verse seven, he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled him, humbled himself. Humbled himself. Can you imagine a person with the kind of power and authority that the Bible claims that God has voluntarily humbling themselves, becoming a servant? It says he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating death that one could experience in the first century world. You want to know how the God of all infinite power and infinite authority, you want to know how he leverages it. He leverages it for you. He leverages it for me. He crawled up on a cross to take the weight of the world on his own shoulders. So those of you who who have been abused by people who have given you an image of a God who is a tyrant and you've been hurt, Jesus goes on the cross and he says, I want to take your hurt. I want to take it from you. I want you to see what I'm really like. For those of you who carry guilt this morning because of sin that you committed last night or yesterday, Jesus says, hey, I want to take, I want to use my authority. I want to use my power. I've got it all. It's all mine. And I want to use it by taking that guilt off of you and putting it on my own shoulders. Those of you who carry shame because of ways that you've been treated or because of things that you've done, Jesus says, hey, I've got it. I've got all power, all authority. I want to take your shame and put it on my own shoulders as I hang on a cross and die. You want to know what a God of all power and all authority does. He leverages his, his authority for you and for me. This is what he does. This is why Jesus is good news. This is why the cross is good news. This is why when we think of a God with all power and authority, we don't have to be angry or afraid because he has shown us what he wants to do with that power and authority. You know, as I, as I wrestled with this this week, and even this morning as I was preaching it, I, I kept thinking, like, I just kept thinking about those of you in the room, that this image of an all-powerful, all-authoritative God just sounds offensive and insulting, and, you know, I, I understand how you feel. I, Will gave me a great image. I'm, I'm going to steal it, Will. Sorry. He used it at the nine. Um, but as I was teaching, he, you know, he just kind of thought, like, this idea of Jesus being able to tell me how to live my life sexually, financially, you know, like in my marriage and the way I deal with other people, it sounds so offensive. It sounds like a God who's just trying to rule us with, with an iron fist. And, and Will started thinking about himself and his son. And when he shared that, I started thinking of myself and my son. Yesterday, yesterday I was, we have chickens. I don't know, I've talked about chickens before. I have some chickens. And yesterday I was building an egg box for my chickens. And you know, I had all these tools out. I had a handsaw. I, I had a jigsaw laying on the ground. I had my uh, sawzall, reciprocating saw. I had a drill and some nails and screws. And, and Elijah kind of wanted to help me, my five-year-old. And so I came. I said, hey, if you want to help me, come help me, you know. And so I let him drill some screws in. 
But every time he put a drill down, he'd go over and he'd pick up the handsaw and just like start waving, <laughs> waving it around. Now, I think you all would say, what kind of father would let his five-year-old play with a handsaw? So what did I do? What did I do? I told him he needed to put it down. I said, Elijah, if you want to help me, if you want to join in what your father is doing, you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me that I have your best interest at heart. I don't want you to cut your finger off today. Put the saw down, son. And so he started helping me some more, but he kept going back to that saw. And eventually I had to say, Elijah, you can't help me today. You're showing me that I can't trust you. I've got to take this all away from you. You can't help me anymore today. When you're ready to trust me, then you can help me. And this is the same thing. Last week, Dave talked about Jesus inviting us into his mission. God invites us into his mission. But sometimes we're going to bring things to him that he knows are harmful to you. He made you. Like, he knows, he knows you. He's shown you how much he loves you. He's shown you what he wants to do with his authority. And he knows what is best for you. And so there are going to be times where he says, hey, I want you to put that down. It's going to hurt you. And in our pride, we're going to be tempted to be like the Sanhedrin, take that defensive posture. I'm the only authority over my life. Can you imagine if my five-year-old tried to tell me, no, Dad, I'm the authority over my life. I'm going to do what I want with his handsaw. Like, <laughs> it's scary. I would let him do it. And so God and his power and his authority leverages it to our advantage because he loves us, because he invites us into the greatest mission we could ever ask for. And he wants us to be well while we partner with him. And so he will call you to put some things down. He's not being a bully. He loves you immensely. He's simply leveraging his power and his authority for your advantage. This is the God that we serve. As we kind of close things up, I, we're going to go to communion. And I want us to think about just a couple things as we go take communion. You know, it's amazing that we get to take communion every week. We have this, this bread and this little cup of juice that reminds us. It is a picture of the way that the all-powerful, all-authoritative God humbled himself, leveraging his authority for our advantage. That's what communion is a picture of. So when you go to communion, go and just remember that. Remember the power he has, the authority he has. And he is calling us to submit ourselves completely to his authority. Now remember this, the sliding scale. For those of you who are closer to this end and you have said you want to follow Jesus and you are, you're living as best you can trying to submit everything to him, one, know this. Know that the grace of God is so powerful. And he will empower you to submit everything to him if you keep pressing into him, if you have that responsive posture instead of a defensive posture. And so what I'll say to you, if you are following Jesus, but you're struggling to submit some areas of your life, I say, will you just, will you trust Jesus as he comes into the temple of your heart and starts to turn over tables and do things that feel uncomfortable, that feel even offensive? Will you trust him and believe that he has every right to you? It's every right to your heart, and he has every good intention for your heart. For those of you who've never decided to follow Jesus, if you, you know, if whether you're a first-time person in church or maybe you're, you've been trying to decide, if you're here, you know, like I said, I have to assume that you are asking some questions, that you are, you are seeking someone, asking questions about who God is and what he's like. And I, I just beg you, if you're asking questions, don't, don't be like the Sanhedrin in the way you ask questions and their unwillingness to know. They're kind of insistent ignorance. Don't be like that. Come to Jesus with a responsive posture and just ask him, test him, and see if his authority is not still very much alive today.
Because he wants to leverage his authority in our lives today just like he did when he went up on the cross. He's still doing it through the power of his Holy Spirit in our lives. So as you go to communion, I wanna, I wanna get you to answer two questions. I encourage you to get together with those you came with, with, with somebody you know, and answer these two questions. The first one is this. Where are you on that sliding scale? And I just want to encourage you to be honest today. Like, I know sometimes in church we think we need to answer kind of a, a church-appropriate answer. Like, if you're on this end of that scale and you, and you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you don't want to give Him any authority over your life, man, that is, that, like, just say it. That's fine. That's just the truth, right? Just be honest. I'm not, I don't want you to go ask these questions so that you can make up an answer and look more pious than you are or so that people will think you're something you're not. Like, just be honest. If you're, if you're a Christian and you know that there's a certain area of your life that you're not wanting to submit, like, just say that. Just be like, yeah, I'm trying to submit to Jesus, but man, I, I, I'm having a hard time with it. If you don't care about Jesus, like, just say that. Just be honest. I, I want to I just encourage you. This is a safe place to, to talk openly and honestly. And if you're with somebody... If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, and you're with somebody that confesses to you in our time of community together that they don't know Jesus, you better love them and love them well because that's what Jesus would do. Love them and love them well. So first question, where are you on that scale? The second question is this. What are the areas of your life where you are hesitant to let Jesus have full authority? Where are the areas of your life that you're hesitant to let Jesus have full authority? So take those two questions. I'm going to pray for us. Um, if, you, if you want to be prayed for this morning, we'll have someone standing at the respond banner, and we'll also have someone back at this exit door. We realize the respond banner is kind of far away for those of you back here. So uh, there'll be someone standing at this exit door right over here uh, with a lanyard on and a red, red uh, badge on it. So if you need prayer, you want prayer for anything, come see us. We'd love to pray with you. Um, let's, let's just pray and ask God to do what he wants to do in our midst as we commune.